Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. All right, we're, we're going to be working through 1 John 1, 5 through 10 today. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along using the screens to my right and to my left. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Please be seated. If you were here last week, you remember Mike beginning the... uh, the first few verses of this letter that John wrote, and he gave some background for John. John uh, was one of the 12 disciples, is that right? Yes. Wow, great response. <laughs> he was one of the 12 disciples. He was with Jesus for his years of ministry. He saw Jesus do miracles. He saw Jesus teach. He saw Jesus crucified. He saw Jesus raised from the dead. He knew Jesus well. He's probably nearing the end of his life. He's maybe in his 80s at this point. He's been faithfully working with Christians who are much younger than him now for many years. It's possible that John is the person on the planet at that time who had been a Christian for the longest. The most mature Christian on the planet. Because he came to faith really young. And by the time he's writing these letters, he's much, much older. And so he's ministering, as as Mike said last week, probably to a second or even a third generation of Christians. And then these, these young theological upstarts, they begin to teach false doctrine. And, and I think we, we used different words last week. You guys remember the word Gnosticism? Cool. What about docetism? Okay. So these views about the world and about Jesus that are not combati- compatible with the message about Jesus were growing in the churches that John is working with. And I think probably this, the quickest way to sum it up is to say the Gnostics believe the body to be evil, the the entire physical world to be evil, cats and dogs and grass and air, everything. Spirit was good and body was evil. And then so an extension of that was the the Jesus that we remember, that we like, that we value, that we worship, he didn't have a body. He only seemed to have a body because bodies are evil and Jesus could not have been the the sort of person that had a body because he wasn't evil. And so John who's now decades into his ministry and remembers Jesus, opens his, his book this way. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Just imagine for a second John's life. He's spent decades since Jesus departed to be at the right hand of the Father, telling people about Jesus. And now these like young idiots are like, Jesus didn't have a body. And he's like, I shook his hand. Like, I was with him. I saw him all the time. And then an extension of these beliefs about the body lead to bad conduct. People begin to believe it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Because physicality, your body is evil, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And so John is concerned and he's going to address these kind of false teachers, these people who have split off from the church with a series of if-then clauses. You may have caught that. If we say we have fellowship, if we walk in the light, if we say we have no sin, if we confess our sin. As I was preparing this week, I found it to be a difficult passage to prepare for. Not because I think it's very hard to understand or it deals with like a sensitive cultural topic. It was difficult to prepare for because it caused me to have introspective eyes, to try and look into my own heart and consider my own sin. So it was weighty. Do you like to think about your own sin? The, the, the personal burden I have, the thing that I probably think about the most in terms of ministry, is um, that I really, really want people who are saved, people who have trusted in Jesus, to know it. I want them to rest in the finished work of the cross. I want them to be assured that the Lord will bring them to the end. I want them to understand that the power to save is not in them. It's in God, and he finishes what he starts. I want saved people to know that. And I want unsaved people to know that they are not saved, and they still must call on the name of Jesus. And so as I was reflecting this week, thinking about the fact that John is talking to believers here, that it, I think it causes the believer to begin or, or, or to persist in some introspection, some personal review, the consideration of their own sin. John is talking to churchgoers, he's talking to church leaders. He's talking to volunteers, he's talking to elders and pastors. He's telling them truths about God and then saying to them, what does your life look like? And so it's heavy, right? At the end, I'm going to offer some assurances because I think that's important. For those of you who have soft consciences, for those of you who are easily induced into a panic about your own salvation, I want you to bear with me. I believe salvation belongs to the Lord. But for those of you who do not have soft consciences, I want you to carefully listen to what John has to say because it's weighty and it's serious. He begins with the character of God. In verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John's saying, we have a message. We heard a message. We're passing that message along to you. And that message is unaltered. You know, theology is a discipline that is not creative. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
The goal is not to make things up if you're a theologian. <laughs> the goal is simply to pass along what has been taught to you. If you received a love letter from your spouse and you opened it up and it was clear that there was a bunch of red ink from the mailman deciding to make the letter even better for you, <laughs> you would be frustrated. It's not the mailman's job to do anything. He's to deliver the mail unaltered, right? As Christians, what we do is we receive the message and we pass it on. We don't change it. And John, what he's doing is he's beginning with the character of God. He's going to describe God's character. And then from that, we're going to understand about human conduct. He's not going the other direction. Because morality and ethics and the way we live our life proceeds from the character of God himself. He says this, this is the message. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is a fitting theme that's used in the entire Bible to describe God in a variety of ways. The Bible opens this way. And God said, let there be what? And there was light. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. The very beginning, God commands light to exist. And it exists and it becomes one of the foundational elements of all other life. It, in a sense, produces or sustains life. In Exodus, after the Israelites are delivered from the oppression of the Egyptians and God has stretched his hand out and sent the ten plagues against the Egyptians and brought them out of Egypt and he's taken them to the Red Sea, we read this, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. David says this, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. When we think of John's own gospel, the one that he wrote, probably before he writes these letters, he opens by describing the word as light. In him, that is the Logos, who we know to be Jesus Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A little bit later... In John 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So throughout the entire Bible, light serves a number of roles as an illustration. Life as, or light as life. It produces life. It sustains life. Light is, is a revealer. That is, in darkness, when you see light, when light appears in darkness, you can see what is around you. Light versus darkness. That is, if it's light, it can't be dark, and if it's dark, it can't be light. There's a mutual exclusivity between these two qualities. I mean, they both can't exist at the same time. So John is saying that morality proceeds from God, and by extension, from his word, we know how to behave and what to do and how to respond to things and what's right and what's wrong based upon who God is and how that's displayed in his word to us. It's, it's not the other way around. Like, I get it. We, what we want to do is take our own experiences and our own reason and the data that we've collected and then try and decide whether or not the Bible's right about what it says to do and what not to do. Today in society, what we're doing when we legislate and, and other things, we're negotiating morality. We're trying to decide, based on human reason, how should people behave, what should be legal, and what should be illegal. And we're trying to arrive at that conclusion using our understanding of the world, using data and stuff like that. And I, I really do fear that's a project that probably won't succeed, or at the very least will not sustain itself long term. 
Because without some sort of objective understanding of what's right and what's wrong, we are eventually left in darkness. Here's what I mean. I was having a conversation with a guy, and I can't remember all the details, but he, he was an agnostic or an atheist, and I remember saying to him, you, you and I probably don't believe murder is wrong for the same reason. And he's like, of course we do. And I was like, okay, why do you believe murder is wrong? And then he's, we're texting, right, so I can see, like, the three dots, and they disappear. <laughs> then I see him again, they disappear, and I'm like, he's writing me an essay. It's going to be nice. <laughs> and eventually I get, like, a long block of text, my favorite kind of text. And he's like, you know, when I think about people I love being murdered, it makes me sad, and I don't want to feel sad, and I don't want other people to experience that sadness when someone they love is killed. And I was like, okay, so if I find someone that nobody loves, can I kill them? Do you, I mean, you see what I'm saying, right? He said, well, why do you think that murder is wrong? So I think murder is wrong because the Bible tells us it's wrong. But under that, uh, the theological truth that human beings are created in the image of God inherently possess that dignity, and it's an affront to God's holiness to destroy his image unjustifiably in some way. So, like, darkness and light. I, I, I have a real objective reason to believe something. I can offer value to human beings without it being a sign, right? It already exists in them because they're made in the image of God. I have a declaration from God. Do not murder people. I don't have to ne negotiate, right? I don't have to talk with other people and kind of hear what they think about murder and what I think about murder and slowly get our way to a compromise about who we should and should not kill. <laughs> and extension of this is, is that I can believe that God is actually good. John says that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all or whatsoever. That he actually is good. That he actually is just. He actually is holy. That he's actually perfect. That he loves perfectly and exercises his justice perfectly. That everything he does is always right. It's not like a mix of light and dark. He's not the ancient Greco-Roman God who could trick you, could betray you, could decide that someone else made a better offer. He's also a God that is, in a certain sense, close, invested in his creation, cares about his creation. His creation does matter to him. He didn't, like, create the world and then just, like, walk away. That he's trustworthy. And so when we come to troubling passages in the Bible... The challenge is not for God, it's for us. Do you ever read the Bible and you come across a passage and you're like, ooh, don't like that? <laughs> Just a few of you. I would think it'd be pretty wild if you read the entire Bible and you're like, I agree 100%. There's nothing in here that causes me any concern. Like, my guess is your opinions don't match the opinion of the creator of the universe, right? Like when you read the Bible, it should challenge you and shape you and form you, probably in different ways. And we find that the truth about God, when it enters into different cultures, it, it challenges them in, in different ways. But when I read the Bible and I see something I don't like about what I should do with my money or what I should do with my body, what I should do with my power or my privacy or my independence, maybe the Bible tells me that I'm not meant to be alone. That I'm not meant to make all my decisions by myself. That I should seek the counsel of others and, and hear critical feedback. And I don't like that. Who's the challenge for? Me or for God? 
John begins with, with who God is. He says that God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. And then he's going to, from this, draw a number of conclusions about what we should do as believers. And he's talking about these people who have opposed him, these false teachers, the Gnostics or the Docetists. We don't really know exactly who they were. First, uh, he calls us to walk in the light. In verses 6 through 7, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When you uh, read the commentaries on this passage, most of them agree that probably what, what John is responding to is a claim on the part of these false teachers that they do sin, but this sin is neither significant to them or to God. They're not too worried about their own sin. So John is saying, if you walk in the darkness and you say you have fellowship with God, you are not doing the truth. We often say telling the truth, right? For us, truth is primarily a cognitive thing. It's an intellectual thing. There are claims that I believe or disbelieve, but in the case of the ancient writers and readers here, truth would not have been primarily a function of thought, but a function of action. You do or you do not do the truth. I can intellectually be a good theologian, but unless I practice the truths that the Bible teaches, I'm not actually a good theologian. Does that make sense? I know lots of great theologians intellectually that in practice are not very good theologians. In my own life, I've wavered between being a good and bad theologian in practice. There's actually not a category for being intellectually obedient, but then, like, in your behavior, being disobedient. You can believe things to be true about God, and then by extension be true about you, and then when you don't do the things that the Bible tells you to do, you are being a bad theologian. You are not doing the truth. Imagine for a second, pretend like I liked football. Just pretend. <laughs> and I knew all the numbers, all the coaches, all the positions, all the fields and players and mascots. I knew every statistic, right? I've watched thousands of games. Am I a good football player? No, right? I know a lot about football, but I'm not good at football. So John is saying, listen, sin matters. It matters. It matters, it matters how we live our lives. It matters uh, what our lives consist of. Our conduct actually does matter. To say that we have sin, but it doesn't really matter, is a, a major theological error. And it's, and it's even worse than to say my own sin doesn't matter. I think it's easy for us to see the sins of other people. You guys good? I'm a, I'm a prof, like, professional at seeing other people's sin. I've got, a, I've got an expert degree in identifying other people's sin, but as the sin gets closer to me, uh, it's harder for me to see. The sin of my friend is harder for me to see than the sin of my enemy, right? And the sin of my children is harder for me to see than the sin of other people's children. And, and the sin of my immediate family is harder for me to see than the sin of my less immediate family. You see what I'm saying here? So in one sense, sin feels less visible to us and less serious to us over time. We also might think that we have sin in our life, but the good news is the good outweighs the bad. And if you're new here, you might think that's what Christianity teaches, that you do more good than bad, and you're good, but that's not what the Bible teaches, right? There's, there's, there's like this mutually exclusive nature between light and darkness, between sin and holiness. John's saying, no, 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 you can't do good, a bunch of good things and then have a little bit of sin on the side, right? See what I'm, see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Thank you. We will tolerate certain sins, and those sins will become enshrined in our lives, and then they'll become protected in our lives, and then they'll have a place in our lives that they should not have. Have you ever heard anyone say, that's just my vice? That's just my vice. Everything's in order, but this little bit right here, don't worry about it. Look what uh, Paul says. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Paul is saying, listen, sin and righteousness do not accord with each other. They don't belong together. I'm not saying that Christians should be sinless. We're going to talk about that next. I'm saying if in our lives we have sin that we know, we consider kind of insignificant, and we tolerate, that is not acceptable. I live in a house, um, and I'm always terrified of black mold. Anybody terrified of black mold? I, like, walk in different rooms and, like, breathe in as deeply as I can. Do I detect anything that might smell like mold? When my wife leaves the house, I, like, like, pull all the furniture out, check behind everything. Like, I'm really terrified. I have a friend who explained to me how bad black mold is. I'm always walking around looking for it. One time I found a small patch of black mold on my baseboard, or mold on my baseboard. You know what I'm talking about? And what I didn't do was say, it can have the baseboard. The rest of the house is mine. I'm going to keep it clean, but the baseboard, it can have the baseboard. See what I'm saying? It will grow in our lives. It will become more dangerous. The other way in which I think that we can claim that we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, is when we have secret sin. When we have public righteousness, but private wickedness. In this case, maybe you know the sin is significant. Like, like maybe there are those of us here who have sin in our lives that's secret, and we know that it's significant, but we are intent on keeping it invisible. We see like the mold on the baseboard, and we push a piece of furniture in the way. We don't want anyone to see it. We live in a world that has made invisible sin really, really, really easy to do. We spend less time gathered together in person. We go into each other's homes far less often. We have digital lives that are separated from our real lives. We have privacy built into nearly every category, so much so that when we invade each other's privacy, it's offensive. Men go off on business trips. Men, when you go on business trips, and I know it, I'm praying for you because you're going off into the anonymous world. Praying the Lord protects you when you are away from other people. I'm sure there are people here this morning that as I'm talking about secret, invisible, private sin, you know what I'm talking about. You think nobody sees me. In Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I'm not saying this to bully you, to just send you into a panic. I'm saying this to you so that you might know, as, as John will tell us next, you can be freed from the burden you are feeling right now. You could be freed from it. He continues. He says in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, look, cleanses us from all sin. 
We read this and it sounds a little bit works-based. If we just had this verse, it would sound like John is saying, do good and then Jesus' blood will wipe away your former sins. And if we just had this one verse, that might be how we would understand it. But we have other verses and other passages that help explain it contextually. The next chapter, which some people include with these verses, and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we learn more about this. This is what Mike is going to preach on next week. But he's not here, so I can kind of do a little bit of this, and he's not going to know. Don't tell him. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And you're like, great. But if anyone does sin, (laughs) we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. We've brought this word up a lot over the course of the last few weeks. Propitiation essentially means to turn away or to satisfy the just demands of God. I'll come back to this more later because he repeats himself. But I want you to notice this. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, sorry, Nancy. (laughs) We have fellowship with, and we might say fellowship with God, but that's not what John says. He says fellowship with one another. Kind of strange, right? In John especially, and in the Bible, one of the ways that we convey to others that we have fellowship with God, that we've been made right with God, is that we have fellowship with one another. In John 13, we have this passage about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and he's washing the most intense disciples' feet. Uh, In John 13, Peter said to him, to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. We'll talk about this more, but there's a sense in which we have an initial washing and a second washing. And through both of these, we are able to have better fellowship with each other. A little bit later, in John 17... We can read this from the high priestly prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I don't mean that we will always agree on everything. Do we always agree on everything? No. A little while back, a lady came up to me after service, and she said, this is the first time I've heard you, and I agree with everything you said. I said, oh, okay. And she was walking away. I was like, wait a second, I'm sorry. This is the first time you've heard me? And she goes, no. This is the first time I've heard you and agreed with everything you said. (laughs) I was like, that's okay. On non-essentials, that's fine. We need to agree on the person of Jesus, on, you know, substitutionary atonement, on the authority of the Bible, but there's lots of things you can disagree with. That's fine. If you love God, if you have fellowship with God, you will love his people and have fellowship with his people. It's a sign. It doesn't save you, but it's a sign. Disagreement is different than discord. We're going to disagree. We're going to have gracious, hopefully humble conversations where we work through various things that we disagree on. But the goal is not to have discord. Because we share the same Lord and the same hope and the same mission and the same 
future, we have fellowship. So walk in the light and confess our sin. Verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The claim here is not that sin is insignificant. The claim is that those who have come to faith no longer sin. That we just stop sinning. Kind of wild, right? There's guys in that church that are like, yeah, I've arrived. I don't sin anymore. I get visitor cards. Um, when, I, when I preach, they get sent to me. And a couple years back, I got a visitor card that the comment was like, stop saying Christians sin. They don't sin anymore. And he also left his phone number on that card. So I called him. And I was like, can we talk about that? He's like, yeah, we don't sin anymore. We've stopped sinning. The Bible teaches that Christians don't sin. I was like, okay. So I, was like, I wanted to convince him that that wasn't true. So I went to 1 Corinthians 15. It says, wake up from your drunken stupor. This is not about him. This is not about him. As is right, and do not go on sinning. If I say to you, do not go on sinning, what am I implying about you? That you're presently sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, we have a witness to the outside world, and when you sin, when you live a life of sin, you are conveying untruths about God to people who do not know him. Who's he talking to? To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified, that means made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul is talking to Christians. In fact, the entire New Testament is talking to Christians, and we have repeated commands to live lives of holiness. We're told, do this and don't do this all the time. It is not the main message of the New Testament. It's a corollary to the message of salvation found through the work of Jesus, but it's very important. And Paul, Paul and in this case, John also, is talking to Christians. John's responding to this claim. He wants them to avoid the prideful assumption that they no longer sin. He also wants them to seek holiness. I think the reason why this is so important is if I told you Christians shouldn't be sinning at all, there should be no sin in your life, you're going to respond one of two ways. You're going to be panicked. You're going to see the sin in your own life and always be wondering, am I saved? Or you're going to assume whatever is in your life is not sin and you're going to ignore it. Paul's concerned. Paul's concerned, or not Paul, John's concerned. John says, these people have deceived themselves. They probably haven't deceived other people. If anyone came to you and said, I've stopped sinning, and you knew them personally, you would think, let's talk about that. That can't be right. The assumption that I no longer sin leads to danger. If I'm convinced I'm never going to get a car wreck, just fundamentally I'm never going to get a car wreck, I'm going to stop wasting my time with seatbelts. I'm not going to worry about the speed limit. If I see a one-way street, I get to choose which way it goes. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Like, that would be a dangerous way to drive. If I, if I just had the assumption nothing bad could happen to me while I'm in the car, that sort of pride leads to destruction. John wants us to trade the pride of assumed sinlessness with the humility of repeated confession. Only the humbled 
are rescued. Truly, only the humbled are rescued. The one who assumes himself righteous on his own efforts is in danger. The one who assumes himself weak and in need of a savior, whose heart is humbled, that one can be rescued. Mike used a lot of Greek last week. Did you guys notice that? I'm going to try and keep up with him. The Greek word for confession is homologeo. And it means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. It means you confess to God what he already knows is true about you. You name it. I think specifically. You confess sin to God specifically. I do, I do think also that confession to others is a profound form of freedom and liberation and it provides accountability and it's good and you should do it. You should do it today. If your heart was provoked when I spoke about secret sin earlier, you should not delay. But in this passage, I think that John is primarily talking about confessing to God. He again talks about cleansing and forgiveness. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, so the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, John talks about the hope that we have, the forgiveness that we have, the cleansing that we have. And what I need to do here is is convey that there are kind of two ways of understanding or two types of forgiveness that we receive. Now, just bear with me. Because right now it sounds like I'm a heretic. I promise I'm not. You can check your Bibles later. There is a first and all-encompassing forgiveness. When our heart is first broken by the sin in our own lives, when we realize our need for a Savior, when we turn in faith and repentance, at that moment we are forgiven everything. That leads to justification. Being declared right before God. Everyone still with me? But the Christian life is a pattern, a repeated pattern of confession and repentance and forgiveness. Sometimes this is later called paternal forgiveness. What this means is we confess our sins and God offers us a paternal forgiveness that leads not to justification, because the work of Christ is done, but to sanctification, in which God makes us more of what he's already declared us to be. We're saved because of the work at the cross. We're justified when we call on the name of Jesus and turn in faith and repentance. And over the course of our lives, one of the tools the Lord uses to make us holier over time is confession and repentance. Do I still have all of you? If you have any questions, you can um, call Mike and he'll answer them for you. (laughs) So we consider the character of God. We walk in the light. We confess our sin. Lastly, we acknowledge evil. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This claim seems really similar to the first, or to the second. In 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Probably, I think, the difference between these two claims is the first says, I presently don't have sin, and the second says something more like sin is not real. That wickedness and evil is not real. That I have not sinned, or I do not sin and I have not sinned. 
There's this radical progression where one says sin is insignificant to then saying I don't sin anymore to then saying I have never sinned. There might be lots of ways that we can come to this conclusion. Uh, One might be saying that sin is a matter of perspective, right? Uh, We could say that sin is solely the result of our environment. Environmental pressures make us do things. It's not our fault. Be parentage. Seeing all these like uh, reels about people talking about how their parents were bad and that's why they're bad. It's like every new like Disney movie has to show you how the bad guy's father was really mean to him. That's why he's a bad guy now. For whatever reason, uh, I think our culture is probably approaching a time in which we would say very few things are truly, objectively, actually evil. When we do that, we say God is a liar. See, ultimate form of rebellion, because not only does it rebel against God and, and engage in various types of wickedness, it fails to acknowledge that wickedness even exists. To deny sin, to say that wickedness does not exist, to say that evil does not exist, to say that you have never sinned, is to be unsaved. If you're here today, and your position is sin does not exist, I have never sinned, you are not a believer. The reason being is this. The main contention of the New Testament is that Jesus came to rescue people from their sin. So if you have no sin, you have no need of a Savior. And so that's where this section ends in most of our Bibles, right? Your next section is going to say something like Christ our advocate. You get to the end of verse 10, you're like, woo, it's dark. John's saying, some of you have said your sin doesn't really matter. When you do that, you lie and do not practice the truth. Some of you have said that you no longer sin. When you do that, you've deceived yourself. Some of you say that you have not ever sinned, or even maybe that sin doesn't exist. When you do this, you make God a liar. And although this is where our passage ends, I, I, I feel just kind of pastorally, it's important for me to offer some assurances to those who I mentioned in the beginning with soft consciences. Some of your hearts may have been rightly provoked about sin, and at the end, you need to come and tell someone about it. Some of you uh, maybe have been provoked not to confession, but to panic. I don't want you to be panicked. I do want those who are unsaved to know that they're unsaved. I want to be clear about it. But I also want those who are saved to know that their salvation is secure. The first assurance is this. Justification is the work of the Lord. Like salvation is the work of the Lord. Do you you know that? Paul in Romans does not say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God or power of human beings to be better people, right? He doesn't say that. He says... He is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. That God is the one who does the saving. That the work to save you was not your own. That your sin is paid for through the work of Jesus. That the cross uh, finished the work of God in terms of you being made right with God. 
And because God did it, you can't undo it. Secondly, sanctification, becoming more holy, is also the work of the Lord. We can see Paul say this to the Galatians. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the what? Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I just want to point out that what Paul is saying there is not that they are your fruits. They're whose fruits? The Spirit's fruits. Do you understand what that means? That means he's the one that brings them about in your life. That sanctification, you becoming holier over time, is the working of the same power that saved you in the first place. That God himself is not just the superintendent of your salvation, but also your spiritual growth. And you can rest in that as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word and what it contains. We pray that you would continue to grow us and give us a greater desire to know you and obey you. pray you bless us as we conclude our services and as we go out this week that you continue to protect us and provide for us. We thank you for the ways that you have this last week. As we approach your table now, pray that you would give us a greater vision of what it is that you achieved through your son at the cross, that as we remember him, we remember the sweet promises we have in his name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.